Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hello. We also have Valentino Stoll. Hey, now. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm just going to throw some stuff out there real quick. Got some uh, exciting announcements coming up related to Top End Devs. So if you're interested, uh, go check that out at topendevs.com. We have a special guest this week, and that is Alex Danae. Did I say that right? Okay, beautifully. Alex, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Tell everybody why you're important and famous and all that stuff. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, my name is Alex. I'm a Rails developer, Ruby developer, sometimes JavaScript developer, uh, hanging off the west coast of Canada on Vancouver Island. Been writing Ruby and Rails for well, coming up on 14 years of Ruby. Now, I'm the lead developer and uh, technical co-founder of an event ticketing company called Ticket, uh, T-I-C-K-I-T .ca. And our business usually is in the music festival space, which we can get into a little bit what that's been like recently. But live events, sort of a uh, competitor to Ticketmaster, Eventbrite, a little friendly little competitor to mm -hmm. them. In Rubyland, my little mini claims to fame are I wrote a gem long ago called Premailer, which takes HTML emails and makes them a little easier to use. The Holidays gem, so you know it's a bank holiday. Uh, those have long since been handed over to much more capable people than me. And yeah, and these days I'm uh, writing lots of Rails, a little bit of React Native, and playing with a few new toys here and there. Gotcha. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates, and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So uh, with, the, with the music festivals and COVID, that your whole family had to move into that room with the bunk bed, right? Yeah, exactly. We all live in here now <laughs> under the desk. They yeah. agreed to keep it down. <laughs> yeah, that, that's got to have been hard. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. I remember the date. It was, uh, it was a Friday the 13th, and that was the day that big gatherings were banned. And we're like, well, that's literally our business model, big gatherings. So we got through, thankfully, it uh, it was interesting in the beginning days to see, say the least. And we had to shrink the team we built, which was a pretty sad process. Yeah. But then it's sort of out of the ashes. There's been a bit of regrowth and rebirth, which is kind of a good segue into part of what we're talking about today is the code base. We were looking at a reduced team, but still a big, complicated technical product. The mm -hmm. ticket store does lots and lots of things. And it was already sort of reaching an age and a size where it was getting hard to work on and hard to work on with any confidence. And so we were wanting to shore up our confidence in any possible way we could as we continued to do lots of technical work. With COVID, events stopped temporarily, but they entered this whole new weird phase of needing refunds and delays and like some really complicated mm -hmm. stuff was going to happen. So we were off the happy path of all our code for a little while. Yeah. And so we started reaching around looking for ways to be able to make changes with some sort of confidence in that code 
because we didn't have the resources to get it wrong or experiment. We had to get it as right as possible. Yeah, so we started looking for tools and that's kind of leads us into, I think, our main topic of the day. Makes sense. Oh, I have to say that, you know, I went through some similar things with DevChat, you know, with downsizing team and changing things up. And that's hard, hard stuff. And then, yeah, just kind of reimagining where you're at and what you're doing. So I, I, I admire you for going through that and coming out the other side, the positive outlook. Yeah, but yeah. I I got to give a shout out to uh, agricultural festivals, flower festivals. Those guys pulled together. Uh, those were the events that could happen. <laughs> you could go and you could take your family out to watch sunflowers bloom. And those guys were our bright spot. And, and also honorable mention to haunted houses because they were mm. in video ball as well. Big haunted houses with corn mazes. We love you guys. Oh, there you go. That makes sense. I'm looking forward to those. All right. Well, let's dive into sorbet since that's kind of what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's it's interesting when I talk to people about this, it it kind of descends into like the Vim versus Emacs religious war, right? Where it's, I don't need types. This is Ruby, right? And then other people, it's like, it's so nice, right? Do you want to just give us kind of the elevator pitch for what you kind of see as the benefit of something like Sorbet? And then we can go from there into, yeah, you know, what what we're actually looking at and yeah. I, I yeah. guess the tooling and, and stuff like that that we're getting from it. Absolutely. So I actually came at my, I'd seen survey when it was first announced reading Hacker News or something like that mm-hmm. and sort of filed that away, read their blog article. And I was like, that's pretty cool. I think seems like a lot of extra noise, but I'll probably check that out one day. Um, and then kind of forgot about it. I think I put a note in the issue tracker to look at it one day. But then I, in my role as a, the front end guy, sometimes I started working with, React Native, uh, React, and adding some types to another complicated product to our to our mobile check-in app and point of sale app, and feeling the code was feeling unsafe there. This this JavaScript without types in it, and I started looking into TypeScript because it was everywhere. And React just kind of it really wants to work with TypeScript. It really wants you to do it. There's a lot of great tooling around it, and it was it was mind blowing, honestly. And I think anyone that's uh, I got to caveat this with. People that use strongly typed languages, they know all this already. And they're probably going like, mm-hmm. duh, man, welcome to the party. But for someone that's been working with dynamic languages for so long, it was really refreshing to be able to look at something and know, like look at a piece of money and know that it's integer sense. It's not a string. It's not a decimal. It's actually just integer sense. And that bit of confidence sort of bled throughout the React Native code I was writing. I was like, well, this is fantastic. I can write much more confident code. The tooling was pretty fantastic. You're getting autocomplete in ways that I wasn't used to getting. So again, people that use these great IDEs, C-sharp and Java programs, like, yeah, man, we know all this. But for a Rubyist and a JavaScriptist, it was, uh, it was eye-opening to have those things working for me, to have the, the IDE working for me, to have the compiler working for me, the pre-compiler working for me. So I had a pretty positive experience with TypeScript. And I, I think there's also an irony that it's JavaScript that made me love types, but, but there you go. And so I started moving back to the Ruby code. And this is around that, the time when our COVID was hitting and we were looking at making big changes to code. And writing Ruby felt uh, pretty exposed. I was looking at these methods with not much to explain them. There's a, an outer accessor called parent or called container. And I didn't know what that container was, what sort of data structure that was. And I just, I missed what I had gotten from using TypeScript. I missed having that 
that safety, that documentation. And so that's what led me to look a little closer into Sorbet. And then the final sort of tipping point was Shopify, one of the sort of lead companies behind uh, Sorbet at the moment, had a webinar about their tapioca tool, which we can talk about in a little bit. It's basically just a tool that works with Sorbet. And seeing them throw their weight behind it, in addition to Stripe, who already has their weight behind it, gave me the confidence to try out this sort of unknown tooling to sort of do a, a bit of a deep dive and see what it would take to get our, our Rails monolith by working with types. And so I started with just a little corner of the app and there was quite a process there. And we can talk about that as well. It's not a super smooth process necessarily to get started yet, but I sort of endured through that for the little bit of startup time. And then I started getting type annotations in Ruby and it was amazing. So what Sorbet does, it was sort of a long intro to what Sorbet actually does. So Sorbet is a type system for Ruby. You can annotate methods and you say, these are the inputs, these are the outputs. And you can annotate variables as you go along. You can check these types in your dev environment. And then optionally, you can have them also checked in production and throw errors if things go wrong. Um, so, and Sorbet lets you sort of roll it out piece by piece throughout your code base. So it's a gradual uh, type system is what they call themselves. So you can start with just a small little file, annotate your data structures, say, this is an active record, whatever. This is big decimal, and this can return this, this returns self, this returns void, this returns an integer, whatever it is, and you get those contracts enforced. So yeah, that's kind of a, a good starting point. Yeah, that makes sense. I also just wanted to follow on real quick because I seem to remember that Ruby 3 is getting some kind of typing system too. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, they call theirs RBS. It stands for Ruby Signature. And so I haven't used it specifically, but I definitely looked into both of them because they were they were very similar timelines. So RBS, Ruby 3's version, is only the definition language. It doesn't actually include a type checker which I found interesting. So I think that this okay. is Ruby's conservative nature, not wanting to force tooling on people. They said, we're going to create this language, essentially, this specification, and then the community can come together and create checkers for it. So there's one called Steep, uh, which you can use to read your RBS files. And Sorbet actually will be a, if it's not already, it's intending to become a type checker for RBS files. Okay. One of the differences with RBS is it has to be defined uh, in an external file. They wanted to be able to change, from what I understand, change, have alternate syntax that wasn't valid Ruby. So they wanted it to go into a separate file for maximum flexibility. So in a way, that's pretty fantastic. That keeps everything well isolated and makes your Ruby mm -hmm. code really easy to read. My personal feeling with it is that having those annotations directly in line is pretty great. I've enjoyed that Sorbet allows you to define your types right in line, right where you're using them. And also, you can be uh, defining variables, asserting types, and things like that inside of methods, which you can't do when you're defining stuff from an external file. But yeah, so uh, RBS is out there, and I think it's got some some sort of momentum, and it's blessed by Ruby. So what what happened was the Ruby standard library got typed as part of Ruby three, and the types are written in RBS, but Sorbet and theoretically other type checkers that come along are able to use these official blessed standard library types and consume them as part of the Sorbet process. So Ruby 3 having these types sort of benefits all the different type systems from what I can understand. All right, that makes sense. 
I'm going to let Luke and Valentino go for it. (laughs) I'm going to I'm going to let Valentino say something nice about types, and then I'm going to start talking. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I I prefer a type system in many cases. To be honest, we kind of already do that in the Rails ecosystem, right? Where we have like preconceived notions of things that we expect certain parameters to come in a certain way and certain parameters or objects to come out a certain way. And it's really the object-oriented design that drives that, right? Where you have objects that are specific things that you communicate between the objects with, right? And so like, if those objects aren't specific in their nature, it's hard to communicate. And having those types definitely helps make that communication easy to to work with and also easy to extend, right? Because you can then say, okay, well, this is a kind of that type and we we use that a lot in our dynamic Ruby, right? Is we extend base types that we make and then use those knowing that it won't fail because it extends whatever it came from, right? So I'm not against the static comp typing helping performance, right? That's, the, that's one of the big drivers here is performance that can come from having a static type typing system for specific kinds of objects, specific kinds of functions. Crystal Lang, as an example, really, <laughs> I saw somewhere where they were seeing like 100x performance by just switching to Crystal for their Ruby app, you know, where they just, because of the typing system built behind it, just can give you incredible performance in certain situations. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to, to seeing more typing coming out of Ruby. And I, I really liked your articles, Alex, because uh, they set up a good kind of path forward for a lot of people on, oh, well, how do I adopt something like this in our existing huge monolith or what's the best way to approach it? And to, to me, you really outlined a good approach where you have some smaller gems that are kind of pivotal pieces that you built on top of and then it built out your tooling and got used to how that flow works. So I guess my question is, one, have you seen any significant performance increase or is it mostly just development process, flow, ease of use and extendability? Mm-hmm. So I believe the survey runtime check. So this is, as I mentioned, there's the two options. You can check on your own machine and you use their tooling, which is just shout out to the tool writers, the, the serb.tc command is the one you run locally. It's so fast, it's unbelievable. For, I, I thought uh, type checking Rails code, Ruby code uh, was gonna be slow and painful, but it's it's incredible. So they did an amazing job. To the You can run that without even thinking about it. It's just, I hit my up arrow and console and run it again. So it's fantastic. At runtime, for these runtime checks to make sure you've passed the thing that you're actually going to pass, there's actually a slight performance hit. And so what Sorbet does is it wraps the method that you've decorated, that you've annotated, you've said the inputs and outputs of, and it wraps a shell around it. And it checks the inputs and checks the outputs. So it's added this extra layer. I don't remember the exact number. Stripe published what they thought their runtime performance hit was. And it was less than 10%, but it wasn't, it wasn't zero. There's a there's absolutely a hit that comes from it, and just in the the sort of negatives column here, writing sorbet a lot of the times is a lot slower, or some slower, some amount slower. So adding these types in, 
So that can be good and that can be bad. You don't always want to be writing fast code, but sometimes it's nice to just jam something in. And especially when things are on fire, it's really nice to be able to just quickly do something. And sort of it gives you escape hatches. You can say like, no, it's called unsafe. I'm going to wrap this in an unsafe thing and I'll just deal with you later. You feel dirty doing it as you probably should, but you can, <laughs> you can, you can do it if you need to. Is that but, like the any type in uh, TypeScript? Uh, exactly. Yeah. They're cousins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like it's vital and it's a, and it's a good escape hatch, but uh, when you're writing in a hurry sort of code or trying to fix something code, it can be a bit slower and there's a few awkward constructs that you need to do. So Sorbet is not Rails native and there's Ruby's dynamic nature makes it hard to type check. A perfect example or so the most instructive example that I find throughout the code base is Rails is, I don't know how to say this out loud, it's the question mark at the end operator. So like, do, does this thing exist on, on an active record model? So I have a starts at field, which is a date time. And I call mm -hmm. starts at question mark to see if it's even there. And I'm going to compare that against time now. So I want starts at greater than time now, for example. But when you call starts at question mark and get that Boolean, true or false, and then immediately, you know, on the next line down or on the other side of a double and you try to read starts at, those are two different methods as far as Sorbet knows. It doesn't know that starts at question mark proves to us, the developer, that starts at isn't nil or falsy or something like that. So Sorbet doesn't know this. So we need to wrap, we need to give Sorbet a little bit more information saying we check the starts at question mark, that's for ourselves. And now we're going to guarantee to Sorbet and their construct is called must. So we say, and must starts at, and now prove to you this is not null. And now I can do my comparison mm -hmm. with the current time. And so that's one of like little bits of awkwardness that there just doesn't seem to be a way around. I mean, not, not in the near future. And that in terms of slowing down velocity, it's things like that. So you become super aware of nils. And I was thinking of if I was going to rewrite my blog articles, it'd be called like adventures in null handling or something like that. <laughs> because yeah, I've never thought so much about nils since using Sorbet because Sorbet needs to think about it. It needs to know all these things exist. And I mean, I don't know if you've ever gotten a no method error on nil. I've gotten a couple in my day. And Sorbet freaks out at those. It's like, I can't, I can't pass the type check with you. I don't know that that thing, that method actually gives you a result. Another example of where there's nils everywhere where you don't actually think there are would be calling an active re uh, record relation for example, or, or just anything that's got a method as an accessor. So if you've got blog post, like post model, and you call dot author on it, and so you could call post.author.exists, and to us, we know I know that that exists, or it's not null. But then if you call post.author again, Sorbet doesn't know what that return value is going to be. And, you know, and rightly, when you think about it, like maybe you didn't wrap your thing in a transaction and some other record operated on it. Maybe there's some other thread that changed post.author. So it's possible that it was null, it got nullified when we weren't looking in that really brief microsecond. And so me as a Rails developer usually wouldn't care about that. I'm like, no, it's like good enough, 99 point whatever percent of the time, but survey won't let that fly. So again, we have to be wrapping it in these different constructs. So we one pattern is you take your post.author and put it in a local variable, and now you can use it. You know it's not going to be nil, or use that must wrapper construct again. So there's a few 
yeah, a bit of things that aren't super ergonomic and they're really confusing in the beginning. You're like, no, post that out there. I already checked that. Like, duh, like read one line above. Okay. So like it's, you see the logic here. And so it is adventures and like thinking about every nil that you could ever have. And so it really lends to a, or prompts a more defensive coding style, I would say. And you just got to kind of go with it because this is what Sorbet wants. And, and if we want what Sorbet gives, which is this, uh, confidence and type safety you kind of got to give it back a little bit so yeah so it's all started with sort of performance uh so we are running a bit slower at runtime because it's doing all of these sort of checks and your development speed can definitely be a little bit slower on the other side though there's a lot of speed improvements that come to the developer flow just with the tooling so i use sublime usually sublime 4 which is lovely now which has built-in language server stuff that they stole, borrowed from VS Code. I use VS Code occasionally, but mostly Sublime. I was going to say, you must be the first person in how long that doesn't use VS Code? Oh, yeah. Enough. I'm a contrarian. Episodes. Really? I don't think we have it in Canada. I don't know. Is it up there? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty okay. It's pretty great, actually. Yeah, that's what I use for JavaScript. And there's no beating TypeScript and VS Code. It's a pretty fantastic combination. Yeah. But Sublime has served me well. I love Sublime Merge. And those two play really nicely together. That's my like, my Git GUI, I guess you'd call it. But so Sublime 4 and definitely VS Code and probably RubyMine and the other ones now have the ability to autocomplete your Ruby code with types, which is crazy. Yeah, exactly. Wow. It's uh, And so you get these autocomplete hints. And they're not perfect, but they're way better than anything I've ever seen before. And they're showing you, you're hovering over parts of the standard library and it's bringing up type signatures for you. They're going to hover over know, any array method or something like that. And you can see what it's expecting, what it's going to yield. And you can see the sorbet signatures right there. And so... Is this only in Ruby 3? No. And as a other digression, I don't think sorbet is quite ready for Ruby 3 yet. I think it's like Ruby 2.7. Okay. Uh, I, I use Ruby... Two seven primarily, mm-hmm. yeah. But like yeah, most of us, yeah, 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 totally. But it's uh, it but getting those. Yourself. I've been on Ruby three for years. Ruby three. <laughs> I have ten years of experience with Ruby three. <laughs> yeah, at least at least ten years. <laughs> it's uh, it was all downhill after one point nine. I missed my old uh, hash syntax. <laughs> Everything else is just newfangled, if you ask me. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So. so you're running a two seven stack and everything works. Everything everything works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean everything everything works pretty great. So you get your velocity back in a lot of ways with your autocomplete, but you're writing a bit slower code because you have to be like verifying your types. Uh, there's constructs that aren't going to be easy that you used to be able to just kind of slop your way through. You'd be like, like with those nils. I'm pretty sure it's not nil. I'm 99 percent or 999 whatever, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to go with it. And you can't necessarily go with it anymore. So some speed up some slow down and, but yeah confidence is kind of the, the word of it and if i can digress just a little further the other bit of amazing confidence that comes with it is when it comes down to refactor things and so that was you know we we're talking about the the events industry the ticketing business and covid i was like well i have to do some crazy stuff to our refunders here they're gonna have to support whole new ways of moving people's money around onto their credit cards you know permanent changes can't get it wrong we're all a little stressed these are coming in fast and furious we need to do some refactoring and i don't want to do refactoring on the money code 
I never want to touch the money code uh, when it's working. Don't blame you. Yeah, yeah. I've had a few mistakes long ago and uh, learned from them thoroughly. So what Sorbet and any type system gives you is a whole level of confidence in refactoring. And so I would pass a payment object into something and I wouldn't know if I decorated it yet. And the type system is going to yell at me if I've done it wrong or if I'm operating on decimals instead of integers, or if I think that money is still a string, all these different ways that things can go wrong just with subtly wrong inputs now become a lot more obvious and you catch them really quickly. So when you make a, a refactor step, the language server, service language server is all in the type checker are sort of wired up in your ID and they're always running. So you're getting those little red underlines and they're saying like, this doesn't look right. This isn't going to work. And are your CI step is also running these more exhaustive type checks as well. And saying like, this isn't, you said we were going to get money and you're giving me a string here. Like what's going on? So you can mm-hmm. catch all these things like super early in ways that you could always do this before. Like I could go read back up the call stack and figure out like, oh yeah, that string was entered as a, you know, as a form input. And I'm taking that as the dollar amount. But it takes a long time and and it's not a confident way to sort of work through your code. And so having those guarantees right at the call site and be able to see, get a stack trace when you pass a string when it was meant to be money makes refactors you know, way better, way, way easier. So, so real quick, Alex, I have a question about that because mm-hmm. I kind of do something similar now and it may be a, a common practice where we make structs or other Ruby specific objects that outline a very similar nature of typing. What what kind of advantages do you get using sorbet that you wouldn't get over using a struct as an example with a form object or any other kind of object that you're you're making along through your pipeline? Yeah, absolutely. And so the very early refactors that uh, I started doing that sorbet sort of prompted was turning things into structs. So old param hashes that were coming through nasty old param hashes exactly like you say should have been structs all along uh so survey will encourage that they have a structure called the t-struct that's a, a typed struct so what you'll get so in one way there's nothing you can't already get from existing ruby you can create your struct and you can call 2i on the things and you can cast all the inputs as they come in and and be relatively confident in them what you don't get is the sort of explosion when things go get put in incorrectly or when you call a method on the struct that isn't exactly what you expected anymore. So I find that with the structs, it takes away a huge amount of the sort of the mental load. It's like, no, this struct has sort of figured it out for us. We, we cast all our inputs when we created it. But with the typed structs or with the stronger type system, yeah, it just explodes if you passed it along to somewhere that it's not meant to be and tried to access a piece of it that isn't exactly the way you wanted it to be. So it's just kind of like a, it levels up those existing structs. So that's still the pattern that we should be using. I should have been using in many places. What is that process like when uh, like you introduce these types Mm -hmm. uh, and typing system and things do blow up? Is it, you get those in advance, those warning signs? Or is this in production and all of a sudden, oh, a string is coming across that's not a type? 
Mm-hmm. That you're expecting. Possibly be in production, <laughs> Good news, we've moved all our areas. You gotta go production. eventually, what right? What kind of blog post series is that gonna be? It must it must be for well, at least it's in staging. Please don't tell us it's in production. <laughs> no, with sorbet, you don't have problems in production anymore. No, no problems. They just go away. No problems anywhere. That's it's right. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a few different layers where it's going to ca- blow up these problems for you. So the very first is uh, in the IDE. It's when you're writing it and it can tell that this thing, you haven't exhaustively proved that this input you're giving it is safe. And so in my experience, we caught like 90 plus percent of stuff was caught in that IDE still writing it stage. So that's running the SRB TC tool, like the type check tool, the really fast one. That's catching the vast majority of things. The next would be in your test suite is going to explode. So assuming we all have test suites that we're proud of, it's going to exercise as many of those code paths as you've as you've written tests for and hopefully blow you up there. And then Sorbet's sort of final version is that Sorbet runtime. So this is the optional level of blowing up production and blowing up staging. And you can configure what it does. So you can say, kind of blow up, but silent, like the rescue and send it to your error reporting service if you want. So that's one level of type safety. Or you can just throw the exceptions and handle them in any way you want. So, the, and then you can even define this per method. It's pretty like uh, elegant little way they've, they've said, they've said, uh, when you define a signature, you can say, all of them, you know, report to my error reporting service, but this one specifically, I want it to blow up or, and I want it to email or I want it to do something else. So they give you, uh, they give you options for how to report these errors. But I will say my experience rolling it out, it was really, really rare for errors to make it into production. Like we've got pretty good test coverage and the test coverage caught a lot of errors and there certainly weren't no errors that the runtime errors that were reported in production but it was vanishingly small like it was it was really impressive how much of it was sort of caught by a, the survey tooling and a good test suite one thing that i'm wondering about because you keep talking about like the the t-struct or you know some of these other things as opposed to using say the parameters hash things like that it seems like you're just swapping out one sort of generic type for another and it seems like most of the time when I'm talking to people about the real power behind uh, typing systems is that you can get pretty specific about, hey, you know, I'm looking for this class or this particular type of thing, like a string or a number or a nil or a not nil or, you know, things like that. And so what I'm wondering is, is if you swap it for, say, like a T-struct as opposed to actually saying, I'm looking for something that is this kind of a thing. Are you losing some of the power of something like Sorbet? And can you actually say, no, I want a, I want a type that looks like, I want a type of author, I want a type of post, I want a type of comment kind of thing. Yeah, so you'll still use your your uh, types that comment and author and post, like those active record types or those classes mm-hmm. that you've defined in just your pure Ruby. The, the T-structs are, you'd sort of reach for them in the same way you'd reach for like an open struct or something like that in, right. in Ruby. So it'd be if, if you need your own little custom data structure for your custom params or your custom, yeah, your, your own little data structure. But you're still using, in the majority of cases, you're passing these full original classes around. So you'll define that a method takes, you know, one of 
author or post or comment or something like okay. that. And it, and it returns one of those. So you're still, the majority of the things you're working on are either the, the Ruby primitive types or those classes that you've defined. Mm -hmm. And then reaching for the little structs, uh, the, the type struct is, is sort of the exception, but super useful when you need it. Reading through it, it reminds me of GraphQL, how they their whole underlying thing is you're defining shapes of objects that you want to fetch or return. That kind of seems that T-struct kind of it is meant for that shaping rather than specific typing in a lot of cases. Although yeah. you do get specific types within them. Yeah, I'd say that that's that's pretty accurate. One interesting way I've ended up using the T-struct that kind of maybe relates to what we're talking about was uh, to trying to write tests for request objects. And I'd pass request objects, uh, like HTTP request objects, through different points of the stack to, you know, to pull out session ID or mm -hmm. things like that. And I realized as we were going through the test suite that there's like a lot of different request objects in there. There's a, I wrote a list. There's rack request, rack mock request, action dispatch request, action dispatch test request. With the four different sort of shapes that were going being encountered by my code. And I didn't I didn't realize that before I was working in, in survey. I just said, I, I didn't even type it at all. I just, you know, called dot session dot ID or whatever it was, and I got what I needed. So looking at those, there's a, a couple options. So you can create sort of a, a generic type that would take any of those. You, said, you make it like an alias and say, this could be one of these four request classes in here. What I ended up doing instead though, uh, was creating one of these structs. And I, I made my own sort of internal request object right at the perimeter of, of where requests came in. And the reason I did that was because I found there's like slightly different ways of calling is specifically around looking at the session ID. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a public ID and a private ID. And it was like a little bit of a mess. And I had some code that was never really sure which one it was going to be getting. Was it going to be getting sort of the bare rack request? or the nicely wrapped up Rails action dispatch version. And so anyway, this is like this some small little bit of like messy code that was just kind of always there and I was vaguely aware of it. And then when I started trying to type it, I was like, oh, this is just kind of ugly. Why don't I just create this little struct out at the far perimeter and only pass that through? So I know that everywhere throughout, I'm gonna have my perfect little request that's exactly formatted the way I wanted and casted the way I wanted. Right. And so this is a pattern you could have done without sorbet very clearly, but it, mm -hmm. writing this typed code just prompted it. And that's been sort of my experience over and over. It's like, no, I could have done this all along. Sorbet made this awkward and now it's better because I had to think about it. And now it's just that much more solid. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood. And I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call. And it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's 
using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. So I have a, a good segue here. Sor- Sorbet is made by Stripe, who is notoriously not really big on Rails. They have a very Ruby-centric stack that they built their own code loader. Right, I remember uh, Andrew Metcalf over there showed loading a million lines of Ruby in five seconds using their their auto loader that they made because they explicitly define all the files that they have in every file that they're going to be using. So any constant is you know was explicitly defined. Um, I don't know if they still do this, but they have a lot of uh, structure where it makes sense to parallel with a typing system like Sorbet where they explicitly define these specific typing structures to fit in with how they've built their application. So I'm wondering uh, what your experience has been like with Rails, specifically with Sorbet, because I know Shopify has kind of taken over that burden of how to use Sorbet with Rails. And you mentioned tapioca as an example earlier. What has been your experience kind of pain point wise with Sorbet in the Rails ecosystem? Yeah. Uh, It's a good question because there's definitely a little bit of pain there. So like you said, Stripe and Shopify are the two sort of main stewards of the survey experience right now. I think of them as like mom and dad and they get along really well. And I hope they keep getting along because it's really awesome when they're getting along. And they've created a ton of really cool tooling. Uh, But like you said, Stripe isn't a rail shop. So there's two main ways to use Sorbet with Rails. One is the Sorbet-Rails gem, which is it builds on top of sort of the way that Stripe intends or intended Sorbet to be used. So Stripe released all these tools, this SRB tool uh, with a bunch of related tools. And the Sorbet-Rails gem builds on top of that. And it does it with some break tasks, essentially that have these little DSLs that go and read your Rails code and they know all about Active Record Finder methods and they know all about controller helpers and they know all about like Rails roots. And they inject all these, these concepts into the RBI files. These are the files that the Sorbet inter- interface files, anyway, the, the, the Sorbet type files. And so it's a manual process. The DSLs are handwritten. The rate tasks are handwritten uh, for the Survey Rails project, and they work really, really well. That's what I've been using. That's what I use to this day. Is I use Survey Rails as rake scripts. What you'll find is there's uh, a lot of gems that hook right into Active Record. I mean, that's kind of the strength of Rails. Think of like uh, paperclip and things like that that add all these extra methods or the state machine uh, gems. 
So those aren't built into Sorbet Rails and Sorbet Rails doesn't know about them and Sorbet itself doesn't know about them. So those need a manual or a handwritten sort of rate task or migration script or type definer. And the process of that is you can write one of these yourself for Sorbet Rails. So it gives you a framework for doing it and it gives you a lot of really nice hooks. But you're kind of, you're working with like the, the AST or like the intermediate thing that Sorbet gets and you say well these are class methods and these are going to go over here and these are going to be instance methods that are going to be injected and so you write up your own rate task mix-in sort of thing and you can either contribute it back to survey rails or you just keep it running privately on your own so that's been the process that i've done so far and once it's up and running it's bulletproof and it works really really well but the upgrade process isn't always smooth uh, so I've got Dependabot running and it updates the survey runtime and, you know, things are often updating and it's not super in, uncommon for the Dependabot to be busted and for me to say, okay, survey, you've done something strange again. Generally, I just wait for the next week and things will be fixed. But if it's still not fixed, it's time to like start spelunking a little bit. And there's definitely some pain when it comes to upgrading bigger gems and it's not totally clear how all these pieces pull together. So the Slack channel, the survey Slack channel has been hugely valuable to get people's insights and be like, I think this is how we're doing it, but there's there's multiple best practices. So it's still an evolving sort of ecosystem. So what's involved in, in upgrading Sorbet? So there's the gens itself, but then more importantly, you're pulling in the, the related gem definitions. So still using like the original Stripe tooling, there's a repository called Sorbet Typed, which is like definitely typed, but like the Ruby version, where there's some uh, hand-contributed gem definitions in there. So you'll do an update there. And then for the rest of it, Sorbet is crawling your code. It is parsing all your code and trying to figure out what methods are in all the gems. Uh, it's trying to require everything, which can be a bit of an intense experience when it requires every single file in your vendor directory every single file in your directory you know it's it's very personal what it does does that does that get faster the more you run it kind of thing yeah you don't have to run the whole thing all the time yeah so you can get sort of incremental ones but every so often yeah when you're doing major upgrades so so where i'm i've currently got some of these stuck in github and it was up to the latest like rail 6.1 patch release or whatever it was and something's changed i don't know exactly what there's also a sorbet change runtime change they're always able to be sort of triaged within a day but it exists yeah and uh i anticipate it's getting better this is sort of back to the beginning of like why make this change or was it safe to make this change i put a lot of faith in the fact that some major companies are pretty invested in all this tooling and so that more resourced people than we are are working on the project and working on the job. The all other way to do this is through the Takioka tooling. So that's Shopify's alternative. And so what Shopify says, or what Tapioca says, is you don't need to use the, the built-in Stripe tooling. You still use this type checker, but you don't need the things that, you don't need survey typed, you don't need a survey rails. And so Tapioca is going to figure out all of this stuff on its own. So I've had a little experience experiments with it i haven't had a chance to try to do the whole switch over on a branch that's something that i'm planning on doing they say that it replaces all those tools uh it has a sort of a superior process a more robust process 
I don't know the details of it, but it seems it seems convincing. But it's also still a little bit rough uh, around the Rails DSLs. So they still they have these sort of handwritten DSLs that can't just do everything magically. And so talking about sort of our corporate sponsors here, the project, uh, Shopify has a list of the gems that they use and they support. And those are the ones that are in Tapioca right now. They have the official mix-ins, the official rate tasks, the generators, but they're not that interested in adding other ones. So it's uh, that that's where, you know, choosing corporate tools is always like an interesting trade-off. So uh, I for anyone looking at if you use a lot of gems and a lot of third parties, we expect to be writing some of your own tooling and maintaining some of your own tooling for those gems, at least in the near term, I would say. So on the whole, it's it's interesting because as we've talked about this, you've talked about some of the upsides and some of the downsides. And some of the downsides, I'm sitting here going, I don't know if I really want to deal with that, right? But, you know, on I guess by the same token, you know, you've also, you seem like you really like the options that are offered so yeah i mean it, it sounds like it's worth it to you so i guess i'm i'm still asking you to convince me uh, yeah i uh, i can only give my experience here and i i would temper it so for me the trade-offs so the trade-offs are the tooling is a little bit rough it's always improving but it's not perfect yet i don't think anything's mm-hmm. at 1.0 yet 0.6 or whatever that means with a really long patch number after it. It's uh, the Sorbet language server sometimes crashes and I have to restart Sublime. Like there's still roughish bits. It's not exactly clear how to fix all your upgrade errors at once. And you might have to spend some time with it. So those are the negatives. Some things like just aren't even supported yet. So like splats as a uh, method prints, just kind of not supported yet. You're gonna have to rewrite those methods. On the flip side, the incredible confidence that comes with having a type system, the documentation value of looking at every method and knowing what it is, the autocomplete potential, the refactoring ability, all those were super worth it to me. It remains super worth it to me. Like I'd rather CI be broken on the dependabot update branch for a couple of weeks until we get to it, but be able to keep sort of the confidence and velocity in the main code base. So I can put off upgrading a little bit of tooling, but to be able to operate on financial code with those type checks, like that's just invaluable to me. So I think it would be a question of, of trade-offs. Of are, are you willing to write a little bit slower code in terms of like slower to write it and to deal with a few awkward constructs? Does that make sense for your project in exchange for a whole bunch of safety and confidence? I would say if you're just typing Rails new and on Greenfield MVP, this probably doesn't make that much sense. Like the types are going to slow you down. They're going to constrain you. You're not going to be able to just duct type everything. You're going to have to do some awkward things around to make your data structure fit. And that's not really what you want in those early days. I still love Ruby for its dynamism, uh, for being able to pass anything I want into a method if that's how I want to deal with it to think everything's kind of enumerable if I want it to be. Ruby's still amazing for that. So I think, yeah, I I think it it comes down to what stage in its life cycle your project is at. Mm -hmm. When thinking about my own projects and how all this interesting tooling is coming out all sort of around the same time, like the tools that I need for my 10-year-old plus code base are all showing up 
right now. And I was wondering, why is that? Well, Shopify and Stripe have similarly aged code bases, like all these sort of Rails luminary companies, Ruby luminary companies, marquee companies, have aging large Ruby code bases as well. There's a much larger, but they're all sort of reaching the same sort of issues. So I feel like there's a size that you reach where it's hard to hold subsystems in your head even. Right. And if the types can hold that information for you, then that seems that's that's the win in my mind. Yeah. So so probably not for every stage of a Rails app's life or a Ruby program's life, but there's certain scenarios. And I feel like you know it. Like if you feel scared operating in your code, I would notice I'd had like all sorts of like type checks that I'd written myself or like casting everything to I. Just call it to I just one more time, just in case. Maybe I'll do like safe operator to I because I don't even know if you're nil. Mm-hmm. The more of that I saw in there, it's like, well, this code is getting, I'm not confident in this code. I need to add some sort of, I'm writing these type checks in my own way anyways. So these parts could probably benefit from a, you know, a strictly enforced typing system. That's interesting. But, yeah. I mean, uh, it reminds me of uh, working with third-party libraries, right? Where you have an expected shape or payload for specific outreach to a third party, you know, having a typing around that could hugely benefit and make that much easier to use than what do I use this for again? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, 100%. And I found that I would write types right for those perimeter points where I was uh, connecting to a gem and I'd want to make sure I, mm-hmm. I would write up really good types for that gem because you can write your own types for like the things you include as well. And I would decorate methods really carefully in really key areas uh, just for that little bit of extra type confidence. Yeah, at those boundaries, at those perimeters, but yeah, definitely not not for not for everyone, but really worth a try. Like I've again, anyone that comes from a, a strongly typed background is probably just saying like, "Duh!" Like we all know this. But have you found your coding design decisions have heavily changed direction since using it? Yeah, not heavily, but definitely, it's it's everywhere now. Yeah, I th- I think about it for sure. I um I. I look at nils. I see nils everywhere now. There's a nils like under your desk right now. You don't even know. <laughs> they're they're <laughs> out to get you. They're out, they're out to get you. Yeah, and you're gonna call no method errors on them. They got all their no method errors ready to show you. Well, um, that, that's, that's enough, definitely that's true. That's the error that I see more than anything else in any of the code that I write in Ruby. Mm-hmm. Is that that no method nil. error for nil? Yeah, exactly. Just like yeah. you patch it. Just monkey patch it and rescue it, and you never have to worry again. Monkey patch a rescue on nil. <laughs> yeah. So simple. Uh, wait, that's, that's enough type love for now, all right? Uh, on a more serious note, uh, Alex, it's a, it's a very well-written article. Uh, we'll gloss over the fact that you split it into four sub-articles, <laughs> presumably to get more clicks like BuzzFeed do. <laughs> um, and, and what I really like about the series of articles is that it comes from from your business, that being an absolutely critical business. When you're dealing with events, when you're dealing with e-commerce, when dealing with sales, if you get it wrong, that will break you uh, because often you're dealing with promoters. So the total market, there's lots of events. It's actually kind of a relatively limited group of actors and reputation is everything, essentially. So this is, I always like to say that businesses' value is not related to their worth 
if every single tweet that was ever made was deleted tomorrow, nothing of value would be lost and not that many people would be upset. In fact, some people, some people's careers may well be saved if that happens. <laughs> would lose their photos, but that, that data fundamentally is of no value. It has mm. mental, sentimental value, but if you lose Facebook, you create a new one. Your ticket for tonight's Rolling Stones concert. Uh, yeah, the world will end. Now, sadly, but you're, you're, that, that, that may well be a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Mm-hmm. So you do not want to get that wrong. So really make your experiences with what is a totally, totally critical path is, I think, really boosts the credibility of Sorbet beyond mm-hmm. what it had before, which, <laughs> as you said, was a bit of a kind of project. So now we've been nice to you. I will now be horrible. <laughs> None of us are very young on this podcast. You can't see if you're listening at home, but there's there's been some, it's the mileage, not the years, I assure you. But I want to take you back in time. <laughs> I want to take you back in time to 1999. Mm. And 1999 was, of course, the year that The Phantom Menace came out. And I'm sure you, like me, went to see The Phantom Menace. I'm not sure how old you were. I'm not going to say how old I was. But do you remember going to see The Phantom Menace and you're really excited to get Star Wars and you came out and your feeling was like, well, you know, at least it's more Star Wars. That's how I felt when they added type checking to rule three. I thought, you know, I suppose, I suppose we're getting more Ruby, but people did not go like Star Wars because of Phantom Menace. That wasn't what they wanted to see. And similarly, people who like Ruby do not want to do type checking. They don't want to do it. I was watching <laughs> one of Dave Kamira's uh, casts. He was doing the uh, Git GitHub's. A co-pilot, if you use the co-pilot. Mm. This is the AI predictive code module. So he was playing with it. He was playing tab and it was just writing the code for him. And I like that. That's the kind of developer experience I want to have. I don't want to have to stop and tell my compiler, this is an int, this is a string. I don't want to do it. One of the reasons I like Ruby is because I don't have to do types. I'm here for the duck typing. Yeah. Mm. And so the duck typing quacks like duck. I would go further in my approach. My approach is not duck typing. I changed the D to an F and it's a family show, but I'm sure you can work out what that's about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do it. So so it's... with that, with with that in mind, with that in mind, it was it's a very interesting time. As you said, a lot of things were lining here. And last year, we had an episode with uh, Takashi Kagubin, who was introducing the RBS. Uh, sorry, no, sorry, the, the JIT. He was introducing JIT for Ruby 3, which was speed, yes? And you said that there was low speed. But one of the things I look at when I look at static typing is I think that this has to be faster. If the Ruby system knows that this is definitely going to be this type, there has to be an enormous amount of performance there on the table ready to exploit. And uh, sure enough, of course, what should come along this week, but a types-based, sorbet-derived, turbocharged version of Ruby, coincidentally. So while I don't care for types, and if I just rescue nil, is my advice, you know, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Don't go into an industry where people don't want to rescue nil. You know, just write happy code no one cares about. But if you are doing important coding, then I can see the type benefit. But what really excites me about types and sorbet 
it's the potential to run fast code. Mm -hmm. This is really what excites me about the type system. And uh, it's, it's really great to see Sorbet and the type systems being, there being a sensible route to introduce it to perhaps a long running project. So I, I, I thank you very much for your a highly, highly credible account of what it actually <laughs> takes to get benefit from these systems. It would be really cool if somebody made a Ruby extension for Sorbet that literally converted all the typings right to their C type. And so just using <laughs> oh, the extension, oh, <laughs> you just end up running C for your typed Ruby. I mean, isn't that what was announced uh, that, just recently? I, I, think, I think mostly... <laughs> I, that's what kind of is kind of a joke. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was going to say you just hurt my brain. <laughs> if it, you know that when Takashi came in, the the whole goal is, what if you could just upgrade Ruby and suddenly your code's running faster? Right, yeah. that's the whole Ru Ruby three by three mentality mm -hmm. that kind of has been achieved right. already. If they can introduce that with typing to another level, I would definitely adopt it for many like you said for the uh, adopting the trade-offs knowing in advance you know what you get out of the performance i mean that's what's wild about the stripe so they're they've got this ahead of time compiled ruby powered by sorbet and mm -hmm. it's the you know that's basically the promise of it which just seems super cool and you can just choose a file so from what i understand you just choose a file and you put a little like compiled true up at the top in a comment and you've got your sorbet types in there because you were already doing that. And it's just going to take that file and turn it into like a native extension. So into C structures, into those RB structures. And just those one file is now a native extension. And you do it with as many files as you like. I mean, that's hella cool. It's crazy. It's, it just seems so simple. Like they've already parsed everything for survey. They already have all the type information. So it is this really cool sort of end game that I, I mean, I was so head down and writing actual production code, I didn't think about what, what cool end game was going to be possible. So yeah, that's super neat. I'm super curious to see how that goes and to try it out. And because yeah, native code while you write Ruby. I tried a Crystal two months ago, just a sort of a, a weekend project. I don't know if you guys have tried that. I loved it. It was like, it was Crystal's really great. Yeah. yeah it's cool stuff. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Love like a job writing crystal that maybe Ruby is going to become a job writing crystal. I mean, Ruby's got types. Ruby's got I compiled. I tried it. What was, what was cool about it? So to me, I liked what I did is I took uh, just a sort of single page Ruby's program that a guy wrote and I just decided to like rename it to .cr and see what happened. And it, it was remarkably little amount of code that needed to change uh, to make it just run. Um, so one, that's cool to be able to write a compiled program, get a little tiny binary out of it using Ruby syntax and just a few decorations. I mean, to me, that's what was pretty great. So it's all the, the good feelings you get if you write some compiled C program and it's just like nice and tiny and you feel really good about yourself in the universe to be able to get that from writing Ruby. I thought that was pretty sweet. Yeah, I was going to say it's not automatic. Anybody who's not familiar with Crystal, it's not an automatic change the file extension, but the syntax is pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, I just need to see some, uh, yeah, some, some different use for the, the Ruby syntax. I think it's like Ruby gives you a lot of, a mm -hmm. lot of niceties. It's still super readable. 
is still yeah. is still my favorite language to write and to read. And so just having that sort of mindset, you know, spread out and have like a little more little more legs is pretty fantastic. I gotta say also, uh, just going quickly back to the no splat in sorbet. I've only just worked out a use splats and now they've taken them away. You know, come on. Come on, man. I mean you uh, can forget now, right? Right. Just shake right. it right, right back <laughs> out of your brain. Like it was never there. That's because <clears throat> I mean all it does is put it in an array. Uh, did you look into why if it was a if it did you look into if this was a fundamental limitation of the approach or something they just haven't gotten around to yet? I believe it's a haven't gotten around to yet because you would need to be able to tell the array what sort of things it's going to have in it. So you write a signature that would go right above that method with the splat. And so from what I understand, it's just a, a not implemented sort of syntactic construct at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. There are things I don't feel like doing either. <laughs> <laughs> but to, so Luke, you mentioned like you're just here for the, for the dynamic Ruby. It's an interesting question of whether Stripe or Shopify or me, I'll put us all in the same category, uh, would have chosen Rails and Ruby at this point, like needing needing all these types. So I see Sorbet is great to come mm -hmm. in when you've already got a big Rails code base. But if Stripe knew what it was going to be, they probably loved the Rails velocity, the Ruby velocity early on, but maybe they would have chosen a type language if they'd known just how many billion dollars they were going to be worth. I don't know. I'm sure we could ask somebody. But yeah, I, I feel like Sorbet is a really beneficial as a retrofit onto an existing project. And it could very well be great for new greenfield things. I'm not saying it isn't, but its benefit to me has been, and we have so much invested in this existing code base. We need to keep working with it probably for a long time. How can I make that better? So I think Ruby with Sorbet isn't like the dream language combination out there. If you could write anything for Joy, uh, it's probably not what you would choose. But as a retrofit, it's a pretty great retrofit and gives gives more life and more momentum back to a, a 10-year-old monolith, which is pretty nice. Like a little bit of Botox or something. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right there. The way I think of it, we're going into jokes now, by the way. John Epperson's not here on this episode to point out when I might be joking, but we're going into <laughs> jokes now, okay? <laughs> Seriously, calm down. The way I like to think of it is when these companies start, you've got all the kind of cool, creative people who've kind of done Ruby and they get it, you know, they just get it. And they're like, types, no way, man. We're going to metaprogram our way to fame and fortune. And these people kind of run the company and they do it for like, you know, six years. They do the IPO, they cash out. And then, you know, the people management, for, oh, no, we've lost our cool, creative people. We've got to hire boring programmers now. We've got to hire Java people and teach them teach them Ruby. And they come in, they're like, oh, no, we're going to have types. We're going to do this. We're going to have software development processes, quality control. <coughs> and that's where all this stuff comes from is because because all the cool, hit people have made their millions and left. And then all you kind of you just get a lot of Java and C-sharp programmers come in and ruin your company. This is a humorous <laughs> interlude. This is not what I actually think. This is, but it's on, your, on, the, on the other hand, it could be, as you said, that every project, if it starts to make serious money, if it starts to become important, does hit this wall. 
in a dynamically timed situation where you do actually care what this code does and you do have to like you really really need it to work and uh, i hit it i hit it this week i had a um i did a demo quite a critical demo and the thing blew up because i was referencing in a uh, i gotta say it was an instance variable and it was in some kind of dynamically scoped situation in one of the classes and that variable wasn't there anymore and it was the old no method no method error this, this is this is a nil you can't call a method on a nil and foolishly i hadn't rescue nilled it you know so that that sank my battleship so I think I think it is it's a level of maturity where when you do have a system that is running, is making money, you do care about, you know, you start waking up in the night going, Oh my god, I this this needs this really needs to work. And uh it's great to have small bay as one of the things you can use to really tighten your code up. I wonder if there's a metric for the feeling you get when you open a file, because there's certain files that open up like, oh yeah, you old friend. But then there's other ones of just sinking dread. Maybe we can get a Rubocop rule for like dread factor. And it's like the, oh, Classic user show. model. Yeah, and it just hurts. And your your heart gets a little sad. And oh, like, I, oh, mean, no. I can tell you exactly which file it is in all of my projects. Yeah, I would love if my editor played sounds for certain files. Yeah, <laughs> or you just open it and them. like dun dun dun. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, so that, that's the that's the where it opens up and you don't edit anything in it for like five minutes because mm-hmm. you're just staring at it going. Yeah, control do, your breathing a sounds. bit. I want an yeah. eight bit arcade style screen shake. Yeah, or just an electric shock from your keyboard. Don't touch. <laughs> me. We'll, we'll have that discussion on adventures in machine learning. It's an Apple Apple M two chip is where it watches you. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Those are the ones that want some types in it. The happy ones, yeah. they, they can just stay by themselves. Yeah, it's it's interesting too, though, because I think the flip side of the point that we've been talking through here for a minute is that I think initially a lot of these companies picked Rails because it didn't have the types in it and they could move fast and break things and you know and kind of ignore a lot of the hey you know we we might want to be a little more deliberate on this. No, we just need to get this move. And yeah, now that we're in it and we've got lots of things that talk to other things and we need to care about what's coming out of all this other stuff. Yeah, now it's there's more here than we can reasonably keep track of. And so we're going to add annotations to keep track of a lot of this stuff so that we don't have to we don't have to worry about what it is because the code's going to do it for us. Yeah, that's I think that's exactly it. I mean, I benefited hugely. I think we probably all in our careers benefited hugely from like Rails new resource, generate resource and Yep. you're going it's so great and yeah and it's wonderful now to be able to just go in and, and shore it up so there is there's a tax to be paid you know you're paying down technical yep. debt but at least there's a way out at least there is rather than just rewrite it i mean I, I think that's probably the alternative is don't change that file or rewrite it in something else and both of those yeah kind of suck so yep yeah that should um, be the name of your blog the nil themed blog i've got yeah. the name it's called it's called rescue nil rescue nil Rescue everything. That'd be great. <laughs> yep. Rescue nil into a black hole. Love it. Yeah, yeah nils are everywhere. They're looking for you. Nils are out to get you. What to get you. Wouldn't have moved to Scala if they'd had this, right? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, we could we could pontificate on that for hours, but let's go do picks. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. 
We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Luke, do you want to start us with picks? Yeah, I've got my picks ready this time. I've got an esoteric pick for you, and I'm not going to link to it, but it was a question on Quora, which I have been enjoying. So consider Quora default pick. I found Alan Kay on Quora, <laughs> as in the Alan Kay. He's on Quora. He's, he's, he's got a few really good posts on there, but it's not my pick. I, know I do recommend it. My pick no, is... No, it's an object representation of Alan Kay. <laughs> he's, it, all I can say is still passing the messages. Now, <laughs> he, uh, this is the question that is my, uh, my, and it's the question, the answer. The question was, I'm not a very smart person, but I really want to become a programmer. Can anyone who works hard enough become a good programmer? What are your suggestions? And if you scroll down, you will find the most amazing answer to this question, which is someone wrote, you can do Python. Awesome. I love your sense of humor, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? Uh, so there we get an amazing pick on uh, Quora. Like I said, Alan Kay's on Quora. That, that totally blew my mind. And, Hopefully uh, so, not recommending Python. <laughs> uh, my second twit pick is uh, you twit face, which is the idea that in a parallel or future universe then youtube twitter and facebook all merge into one company and that company becomes you twit face oh dear lord please no wow and that was a prayer for anyone who's wondering (laughs) yeah so that's me for my picks slightly esoteric picks this week but yeah check out uh, alan k and quora awesome valentino got some picks sure so a while ago aaron patterson released his very first product the analog terminal bell which is a physical a physical bell that you know you ring at a hotel or something that's hooked up to a solenoid and when you are typing something and your terminal goes doom 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 it instead rings the bell <laughs> so you get a physical real world terminal bell <laughs> so i finally have all the little parts that he outlined for it and i just got my pcb manufactured so my second pick is the uh, the manufacturer I use is Osh Park, a OSH Park. Incredibly cheap to print out a few of these to test with. So I'll be putting that together in the coming weeks. Really excited for that. Are those and those guys d- the purple PCBs. That's right. Yep. Yeah, they're cool. They're pretty cool. And, and just a, a kind of funny one is I did a search the other day for the loudest clicky keyboard key that you can get. The loudest oh, switch, man. and uh, it turns out that there is this thing called a beam spring that people have attached to a click solenoid. So that if you've ever seen those when the mechanic or their original like typewriters switched to electronic, they had like a serious like downtick and upspring <laughs> to kind of mimic what would actually happen from a typewriter. And they're very seriously loud. And it was really funny to see somebody had put that on their mechanical keyboard. <laughs> wow. So that's one step away from electrocuting someone with their keyboard, right? Right. We're close. <laughs> close. It's coming up. You know, if you, if your key switches are that loud, you should be electrocuted with your keyboard. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm going to throw out some picks. So lately, 
And uh, this this is a pick mostly just because I've been spending all my time in it lately. Not that I actually have necessarily been enjoying this, but I've been uh, working on getting my books done so that I can get my taxes filed, so that I can get my tax return, so that I can money, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. And so anyway, and I'm not going to complain about how hard it is to find a competent bookkeeper because you don't need that rant and we don't have another two hours. So anyway, I'm, I've just been doing it myself and I actually figured out how to get my books reconciled. So I tried it before. Quick, QuickBooks sucks, by the way. I tried it in QuickBooks like three or four times. I couldn't quite get it to figure out how to get it to work. So the numbers were always off. And then it's like, oh, well, you just add an entry so that the so then they balance. And I'm like, yeah, but why aren't they balancing? Right. You know, what did I miss? You know, and uh, so anyway, I switched over to a system called Zero. That's X E R O. And I think they're based out of Australia or something, but uh, they're their system's a whole lot simpler. It also does the invoicing and stuff. I don't think they do payroll like QuickBooks does, but all my people are uh, contractors. So I just PayPal them and they like that. So anyway, I'm going to pick zero because it's simple. It's easy. I've been able to get everything reconciled. At this point, I've got everything reconciled except for my main operational expenses account. And I've got that done through... I'm working on February of this year at this point. But anyway, it's so I can file my taxes now. But yeah, it's 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 worked out pretty well. So I'm gonna pick that. And then on a slightly more interesting uh, pick, and this is leading into I kind of teased it at the beginning of the show with top end devs. And keep an eye out because uh, devchat.tv and top end devs, there's gonna be some major stuff going on over the next couple of months, uh, you know, where the two kind of fuse. But anyway. Just because I feel like top-end devs is really what I'm about. So what I want to do is I want to help people become top-end devs. We'll probably do an episode at some point where I talk about what that means. But I wound up doing a bunch of coaching since February-ish. And initially, I was helping people start podcasts and get started building their personal brand. And I figured out that I did some coaching just helping somebody just figure out what the next stage was in their career. And I, I love doing that. I, I really, really enjoy doing that. And so I've decided that every week I'm going to do... And I hesitate to use this word. And so I'm going to do a mini rant. And then I'm going to use the word anyway. A webinar and mini rant. So webinars are when somebody gets up and gives you half the information you need to do what you wanted. And then gives you a sales pitch at the end. That's not what I'm doing. So I'm going to do a webinar where I give you 10 to 15 minutes of training to help you actually get what you want without the sales pitch at the end. And then after that, I'm going to answer questions about whatever. Okay. So if you're trying to figure out what to do next in your career, what to learn next, how to deal with the situation at work, how to make a situation better at work. Hey, everything's going great at work. What should we be improving? Things are not going great at work. What should we be improving? Hey, things are going great in my career. Is there something I should be considering to become a speaker, become a podcaster, become a YouTuber, become a blogger, become an author? Whatever. I've either done it or I know people who have done it. I can get the answers for you. And I really help enjoy helping people just figure this stuff out, right? I'll answer questions about resumes, interviews. I mean, whatever, right? I wrote a book about finding a job. I'm working on a book about planning out your career, planning your learning journeys, figuring this stuff out. 
I've got a framework for a lot of this stuff that I'm actually working on just putting together a whole bunch of content for for people to help them get there. But I want to help people now, right? I don't want to just like, hey, here's a big fat course. And so I, I really want to just jump in and help people. It's totally free, right? Incidentally, if you go to the link, so it's devchat.tv slash level up. Right now, I'm looking at doing it at noon mountain time on Wednesdays. Uh, and I'm using the Zoom webinar software. So we'll say webinar on there. Still hate that word. But then I'll bring you on screen and we'll actually talk, right? So that's the other angle. Is this not Q&A like, so, you know, how do I get further on my ride blog? It's not going to be like that. I'm going to bring you on screen. Hey, Chuck, I'm dealing with this. And I'll ask probing questions. We'll dig in deep. We'll figure it out. I think some of the answers are going to be in a rather short. It's like, hey, here's what we should do. I'll make sure I have enough information to answer your question. I'll answer it. Some of them will be short. Some of them I think I may wind up talking to somebody for a half hour, right? To make sure that we get a thorough answer to their question. But, and we'll just go until we either run out of time or until we run out of questions, right? And so, but we'll do it every week. And so if we don't get to your question, we'll make sure we get to you the next week. But I just, this is, this is really what's lighting me up right? is just making a difference for folks. So go to devchat.tv slash level up and get get in and we'll do it, right? And so, yeah, I'm planning on just dropping a piece of the framework every every week and uh, doing that level of instruction. And I really just want to push people to figure out what they need to kind of go to that next level. I feel like people just kind of wind up on this default trajectory for their career and they just wind up coasting into something that doesn't quite light them up or fulfill them. And I'm sorry, folks, but that sucks. So let's figure out where you want to go. And then let me help you figure out where that is. There is the off chance that I offer to help you out one-on-one or that you know maybe there's a deeper discussion to be had on a podcast episode. I'm not promising any of that, but at least we can get the conversation rolling and you know help some folks out here. So yeah, devchat.tv slash level up. And like I said, I'm, I'm really curious to see who we can help out with this. Totally free, no strings attached, no sales pitch, no nothing. I really just want to help people out. So anyway, that's my other pick. Alex, what are your picks? I have two, two and a half, two related to pandemic hobbies and one for code. One for Code is uh, a series of articles or a book called The Architecture of Open Source Applications. And this is a fantastic thing. I come across it every couple of years and I'm like, I should go spend more time reading that. Every time I do, I'm super stoked. So it's the creators of various open source projects, Audacity, Audio Editor, Bash Shell, SendMail, Mercurial, MediaWiki, which is behind Wikipedia, a bunch of others, talk about how they architected those things. Uh, they sort of give you a behind-the-scenes look on the processes behind it, the decisions made, just sort of really interesting stories from the trenches. So that would be one. And then the two pandemic hobby ones, one is Sonic Pi, which I imagine has been a pick before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love Sonic Pi. So write music with Ruby, samples, loops, Drum, da- drum patterns. SonicPi.net is just, it's so much fun. My sort of sanity in early pandemic days was making dodgy beats in Ableton to inflict on my children. And yeah, and then I discovered SonicPi and I was like, well, that's my two favorite things together. So shout out to SonicPi. Uh, the other is an app. It's just called HealthFit app. And 
it was I was looking for a way to get stuff from my watch, my Apple Watch, into Strava, and it was a pain. And I bought this app about two years ago, and you pay for it. Uh, it's about six Canadian dollars or something like that. And it was just meant to be a little synchronizer of your like your exercise on your watch, but they keep adding stuff. This whoever this developer is, shout out to the developer of HealthFit app because they keep making this thing nicer and nicer and nicer, all for like the same original price. It's one of those rare. There's no ads. It's a smooth, well-architected app. It uh, syncs nicely. It renders nicely. It's just like a really well-made app. So if you track activities on your watch and want to sync them other places, so I've like put mine in Dropbox just so if I ever you know, got my own copy of all my stuff. It's great. And I've started just using it for nice metrics because I like metrics. So those would be my picks. Awesome. Okay, one more question, Alex. If people want to connect with you, ask you questions, send you actual sorbet, mm. uh, where do they find you? Mm-hmm. I like there's a kombucha sorbet that's really good. Just saying. You can find me sporadically on Twitter, uh, Mr. Mr. Bug, or uh, my website, dunae.ca, D-U-N-A-E. Awesome. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up here. Thanks for coming, Alex. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Till next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y.com to learn more.